Your call has been forwarded to an automated voice messaging system. Michael Easley. Is available. At the tone, please record your message. Hi, Dr. E. Hi, Dr. E. My name's Kristen. When we are secure, can we walk out of the hand of God? Curious about what you think about Jephthah's vow to sacrifice whatever came out of his house in return for his victory in battle. When Jesus was on the earth, could he only do what the Father asked him to do? My question is about hearing from God. I don't believe that we are predestined that he selected a few and then died for the few. Welcome back to Michael Easley in Context. This is our sixth full episode of Ask Dr. E. You guys are doing a great job calling in, leaving us a voicemail with your questions or writing in via email. We are loving hearing from you. How are you doing today, Dr. E? I'm I'm doing great. I got a call from a friend of ours in the Virginia, D.C. area over the weekend. They said, we just listened to the last Ask Dr. E. And they were so excited about it. (laughs) And I've known these people for 30 years ago. Don't you already know all the answers to these questions? (laughs) (laughs) But it's nice to hear the feedback. We do appreciate it. And we appreciate folks that are calling and leaving voice messages. It's fun. And, you know, it's been a good exercise for you and me. Yeah, it has. Thinking through, okay, these are good questions. How do we address these? And what are people what 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 are they thinking about? What are they wondering about? So, it's it's always interesting and never dull. That's right, <laughs> which is good. <laughs> All right. Well, we have several questions for our episode today, so we are going to start and hear from Mary, who has a few different questions in her voicemail. So we're going to break it up and take them one by one. So the first part of Mary's question. Here we go. Hi, Doctor E. Or it's nice to call you, Emmanuel Michael. This is Mary from Lake of the Woods in Virginia. Uh, the question I have for you is about Jesus. When Jesus was on the earth, could he only do what the Father asked him to do? Since he was fully God and fully man, was he able to do the miracles on his own? Uh, was he able to look at the heart of man on his own? Or was it always through the power of the Holy Spirit or his Father who would communicate with him because of the special connection? You know, this is a great question, Mary, and like Hannah said, we'll, we'll break it apart a little bit. At the core, we're trying to grasp that Jesus was fully God and fully man. Now, let's, let's start out by saying this is a major New Testament teaching. So what we're going to do in this you know, Q&A is, is going to be abbreviated, but let's think about some things John's gospel records. And to me, these lay a foundation for thinking about some of the points in your, in your uh, question. John 5, 19, therefore Jesus answered and was saying to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, these things the son of man does in like manner. In John 5, 30, a few verses down, Jesus again, I can do nothing on my own initiative as I hear I judge and my judgment is this, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And then finally, in John chapter 6, verses 38 to 40, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all he has given me, I lose nothing, but I raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, 
that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Now, for those of you who really want to burrow down further, uh, let me just make a little comment about a concordance. And now, of course, everything's on your phone or your tablet or your computer, but there's such a thing called an exhaustive concordance. If you use a New American Standard Bible, you'll want to use a New American Standard Concordance. If you use an NIV, you want to use a New International Version Concordance, and so on. So you can go online, on your phone, on your device, on your computer, or actually a book, and you're going to look up certain terms, and every time that word occurs, therefore exhaustive concordance is going to show up. So in this case, if I was starting out with the Father's will, I might look up the word Father in the New Testament or the will in the New Testament and just start scrolling down and circle all the times it's in John and then open your Bible. Again, on your on your computer or tablet or phone, you click to a concordance and you can generate a list of all these kind of verses. So that's for free. Let's come back to the question. So the submission of Jesus to the Father is what I want you to see. He's the God-man, but he willingly submits himself to his Father's will. He left his place in heaven with his Father, and he came to earth. He submits to his Father's will all the way to the crucifixion, where, of course, we know about Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, where he prays this couple pass from me, Matthew twenty six thirty nine, And he went a little beyond and fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. So, even though we have these glimpses into the thoughts of the God-man, we know that he willingly submits to his Father in everything. Now, Mary suggests that Jesus was able to do miracles on his own, and uh, that was, that's what I call an argument from silence. In other words, the Bible doesn't say Jesus did this without consulting his Father. The Bible doesn't say the Father told him to do this miracle, okay? So, John 5.30 is clear. I can do nothing on my own initiative. In John 6.38 we read, not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. So let me suggest these are overarching principles of Jesus' ministry. He always does that which is pleasing to his Father. He only does what his Father instructs him to do. So, I mean, Mary asked specifically not just about miracles, but that Jesus had the ability to see the heart of man. And so was that his ability or was that the Holy Spirit in him? That you know, I mean... Yeah, and it's a great question. Um, let's, let's look at that verse, that reference, because we have some insight, again, from John's Gospel. In John 2, it's a bit of a larger section but it deals with his comment about destroying the temple in three days, and he says, I will raise it up. And the Jews take issue with him. They go, hey, it took 46 years to build this. But John says Jesus was speaking of the temple of his body. And in John 2:24, Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. So a couple things. This is the insight, Christ knew the hearts of men. Does that mean he was a mind reader? I don't know. I think as the sovereign creator of the universe, he certainly knew all the thoughts and intents of man's heart. Yeah, and I mean, sometimes uh, there are passages where it's like Jesus is like, I know what you're thinking right now. Like, (laughs) Right, right. But as the God-man, we've got this tension Uh where he is going to 
uh, know things, but also restrain things. Sure. Um, let me talk about one word here. I think it's really interesting. Jesus was not entrusting himself to man. That's the same word as believed in the Gospel of John. Huh. He knew men. He didn't need to put confidence in men. He didn't need their testimony to prove him or to prove his mission or ministry. Hmm. So, uh, yes, he knows what's in the heart of man. And, again, I, I wouldn't differentiate so finely that God let him know what was in heart, the man, man's heart yeah. or that Jesus knew on his own because we do have the Trinitarian Godhead. He's fully God and fully man. Yeah. I think even that is so fascinating. I mean, I, I guess now having a toddler, a little boy, and as we went through Advent and now Easter, and uh, Tyler and I watched Passion of the Christ this past Easter, you know, in preparation for Easter Sunday, and uh, you just, I mean, once you become a mom, just connect with that storyline on a different level, watching Mary, you know, watch her son be tortured and crucified. Um, but the thought of, okay, Jesus as a toddler, was he fully God, you know, fully right. God and fully man right. at two? And, you know, seeing my son's sin nature come out, but also knowing like a crying baby is not sin nature. Anyway, it's just, it's a fascinating, when, when did he really be, I mean, I guess he was fully God from birth, but Interesting to think of fully God could be in the teeny tiny package of a four-year-old. <laughs> in utero. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah, in utero. So you, you go back to, we talk often about Christophanies or Theophanies, yeah. the pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus in the Old Testament. So he has eternally existed as a son. You know, I remember a small group years ago, Hannah, and for whatever reason, uh, I can't remember the context of the question, but it was like, well, I, I pitched the question what state is Jesus in right now when he's at the right hand of the Father? Mm. And the group had all these kind of different, you know, answers. And I said, don't you think he's a physical, corporeal, a, a body? It's uh -huh. a resurrected body, a physical-natured human being, fully God, fully man. But he is now ascended to the Father and glorified. Uh -huh. And it looked at me like I was crazy. Huh. And I go, I don't know why we have this picture of Jesus being sort of science fiction, you know, yeah. flying around, taking different what shapes. What about like forms. Revelation? Like he's the lamb, like the lamb. The, he's the lamb. He's the, he's the one who's slain. Yeah. He's riding on a horse with yeah. his name on his thigh. We have images of him. But I don't think that any of that takes away that he's a physical person, mm -hmm. fully God, fully man. Yeah. I mean, the, the, some Bible scholars call this an antinomy, two truths that you can't you know, justify. Sure. Uh, no, that's not the way I say it. Two truths that occupy the same space. You can't have a round square. Right. Uh, it's a bad illustration. Yeah. But he's fully God, fully man. But let's go back to, to Mary's question. Sure. And let me let me suggest one other uh, passage with some caution. Okay. Is Philippians chapter 2. And this is, begins in verse 7. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So he's fully God, fully man, yet Paul is telling the Philippian believers he emptied himself uh -huh. willingly. Uh -huh. Now, this is called the kenosis in Greek. Uh, this was not self-willed. This was becoming submissive to the Father's will. So it's safe to say, and I put this in quotes, Jesus set aside his full deity, 
Now, okay. uh, that's a landmine for, for careful theologians, but just for, for <laughs> conversation's sake, he sets aside his full deity, yet he is fully God and fully man, obedient to his Father. Uh-huh. So we can't comprehend the eternal creator, sustainer, Jesus, who, by the way, I believe is the one who created the universe. Hmm. God the Father has God the Son doing the work according to Colossians chapter 1. So right. Jesus is creating the ordered world we see. He's creating the animals. The spirit's the one that's like hovering. The, the, right. yeah, the whole so trinity's there. Trinitarian Godhead uh, that's working in yeah. concert is one. But when he emptied himself, in my, just for my simple brain to understand it, yeah. think of himself by his sovereign ability able to say, I'm not going to know certain things while I am incarnate. Okay. I know them. And I know them from eternity past, yeah. but because I'm the God-man, again, it's a poor illustration, but almost think of him compartmentalizing, I'm not going to talk about that. I'm not going to think about that. I'm huh. not going to hold that the way I can hold it. Now, he could. Sure. But this was the kenosis. He emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, made, uh, made in the likeness of men, found in appearance as a man, all the way to the point of death. Huh. So when he cries out on the cross, you know, my God, my God, why, why have you forsaken taken? me? Yeah. That you see, he is he is fully human, and at that moment, he the kenosis is realized. He's he's allowing the death to occur. They didn't kill him on the cross, right? They, they crucified him, but he's the one they who give up gives his up his life yeah. because he's eternal. You can't kill him, mm. but he has to die. Mm. So you know, a lot of this is really a mind bender. But anyway. I'm off in the weeds now. He sets aside, and again, use that in quotations. He sets aside his full deity in the sense that he's still fully God, fully man, but he empties himself. Yeah. And again, it's not doesn't answer all my questions, but it helps me understand a little bit about this tension. Yeah. I think my cop-out is just my tiny human brain just can't actually understand all of this. And maybe when I always wonder when we get to heaven, will we have full comprehension, understanding of all these things we wondered about? Or will it just not even matter anyway? So we won't care that we still don't. As as my friend Ronnie Cohen (laughs) says, it's a 50-50 likelihood. Either you're right or you're wrong. (laughs) But, you know, what's interesting about this is – I mean, this is the stuff of theology. This is where you yeah. know, people spend their lives studying this. Yeah. So I'm impressed when people ask these questions because they're thinking, you know, I wonder what that means. Yeah, you know? it's great. Okay, so Mary has, a, has another question. So let's listen to that now. I believe that Jesus Christ died for all men. I don't believe that we are predestined, that he selected a few and then died for the few. That would be like being on the cross and saying, oh, wait, I'm not dying for you. I'm dying just for these folks over here. So I have a hard time with that concept. Okay, so we answered a very similar predestination question in the very first Ask Dr. E. And, of course, I don't know the timestamp off the top of my head, but in the show notes for this episode, we'll make sure that we list exactly what time that question even comes in on episode one. So if you didn't listen to episode one or you want a lot more info, um, you can go back and just fast forward to the timestamp that we put to let you know when that question was asked. But so, Dad, like in 60 seconds, 
answer Mary's question. Oh, right. <laughs> well, it's 120. <laughs> okay, okay. All right. It's a huge question. Let's go back. And, I, and we, we did answer it there, but I want to talk a little bit more about the extent of the atonement. Okay. Because we didn't talk about that. And True. that's part of her question. There are two main views on the extent of the atonement, limited or unlimited. Uh-huh. And just so I, we don't make any presumptions, the atonement is when Jesus died, his blood is shed to atone, to cover, to pay for man's sin. Right. The question is, how much does Christ's blood atone for? So the reformers held and hold to what is called limited atonement, meaning Jesus dies only for the elect. A popular phrase that you might hear is that Christ's blood was not wasted or spilt. Yeah, yeah. Now, I'm not saying that sums up all Reformed theology. I'm just saying the stress there is Jesus dies only for the elect. That's limited atonement. Unlimited atonement is that Jesus sacrificed the blood that was shed, which, again, is the only means to atone for sin, was sufficient for everyone but effective only for those who believe. Sufficient for everyone, Mm. but effective only for those who believe. Now, let me give you a few verses on this. John 12, 32. And I, if I am lifted up from earth, will draw all men to myself. It's a cryptic phrase, and many would argue when he's lifted up is a reference to the crucifixion. Uh, Some will argue that he's talking about the ascension, we can have that argument later. The point is, <laughs> he's going to draw, not the elect, all men to myself. Mm. John's repetition of the word world throughout his gospel yep. is huge. John one twenty nine, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the cosmos. John 3.16, for God so loved the world. And you can follow that through John again with the concordance. And then there are several words that are important to study Whosoever, if you're a King James user, whoever, in most other versions, is used over a hundred times in the New Testament. And it seems clear the whoever is not limited to whoever slash the elect. Right. It's a broader word. Uh, Another term is all in these contexts. Christ dying for mankind. Just one verse to illustrate this one. And this to me is a haymaker verse. Titus 2.11. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all men. Now, that's not universalism. Mm. That doesn't mean everyone is going to be saved. Right. But you can't dismiss the all, the world, the whoever, uh, these broad sweeping terms. And and what I'm going to argue for is unlimited atonement. Now, I I love my Reformed brothers and sisters, and I understand a number of reasons why they hold this limited view. One of them is a little indelicate to talk about, but understand reformers uh, early on were Catholic priests. Right. And most people, even today, who call themselves reformed, they forget. They don't realize that connection. They were Catholics. Yeah. Martin Luther was a Catholic. Yeah. Melanchthon, Zwingli, they were Catholics. Yeah. And so when they're reacting to the teachings of the Catholic Church, uh, and undoubtedly as they left the church, which wasn't their intent, but as they left the Catholic Church, so-called Reformation begins, the Reformers, the protesters, um, they still had some vestiges of Catholicism, what is also known as Arminianism. And some of these other ideas were woven into Catholic theology. So just bear in mind when someone says I'm Reformed, 
be careful that you don't let a, uh, a simple article on the Reformation teach you about the Reformation. It's a much broader subject and a lot more complicated than the five-point tulip, for example. Uh -huh. Secondly, at another level, this is an unnecessary argument because all who elect will be saved. And the atonement is sufficient for all the elect. Okay. Now, that may seem like a cop-out, yeah. but I think <laughs> when you push really hard on the idea of limited atonement, he only died for the elect, his blood was spilt, his blood was wasted. Those are emotional terms. Yeah. And I find no reference in the New Testament that says Christ's blood was wasted or spilt. Right. Because he dies for sinners. Yeah. He doesn't die for the elect in the New Testament. He dies for sinners. Now, are the elect? Yes, the elect are the ones who respond by faith. So this this limited, unlimited atonement is a little different than just talking about the predestination term. Now, sure. Now, this will be the 60-second part. Okay, okay, yeah, because you, <laughs> wow, way went over that. <laughs> so this will be, so Ephesians 1.5, sorry, Mary, this is what it says. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. It's hard for me to get around the doctrine of predestination, when Paul says it straight up, he predestined us. He planned for us to be adopted as his sons. And lastly, in Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified, and these whom he justified, he also glorified. And this is a part, I think, even some of our fine Reformed friends, and uh, I, I believe in predestination election, I believe what's called the Reformed soteriology, big words. I believe this is how we come to Christ. But notice what Paul says. He whom he predestined, he called. So the call, the kaleo of God to his saved people, he had to call them. Even though they're predestined, they're called. And that's why we talk about mm -hmm. at some point a person responds to the call of salvation. Yeah, interesting. And that's where the arch illustration that we talked about earlier in one of the in first episode episodes one. is uh -huh. so helpful because all are called, is my argument, but only the elect will respond to the call. Yep. So I would say the call of salvation is universal because he dies for sinners. For all. Yeah. It doesn't say he just died only for the few. Right. Now, you can parse some verses out and build that construct, but if we're going to do biblical theology, looking yeah. at the whole, not just a few verses. So, again, many folks have trouble with the Scripture. I understand that. But to sum it up, Christ's atonement is sufficient for everyone, but effective yeah. for only those who believe. Yeah. Okay. So Mary had a third question, and so we'll listen to that now. When we are secure, can we walk out of the hand of God uh, volitionally, or are we in his hand securely once we belong to him? Let me differentiate. If I understand her question, we are secure in our salvation, but that does not mean that we cannot willfully choose a sinful lifestyle. Say another way, I think many believers are following Christ, but many believers choose to live unfaithfully. They live in mm -hmm. sin. So if she's asking about the security of salvation, it rests upon Jesus' work in our place 
on our behalf instead of us, not some measure, which is hard to quantify, right. of our faithfulness or unfaithfulness. And I know a lot of Christians like to, you know, talk about characteristic sin and a lifestyle of sin. I, I want to be very cautious because we all know men and women who have a clear understanding of the gospel. They, they have by, you know, we talk about fruit, which I think is a misapplication of that passage. But we look at a person's life and we say, they've been, they've been a faithful believer. Uh, and then they go wonky. They live in sin. They come out. They choose a lifestyle that's obviously in contrast with the Bible. I'm not ready to race and say based on their uh, current, current state, sin, yeah, uh-huh. that, they're, that they're lost. Now, or they were never saved. Right. Or, uh-huh. right. Now, it's possible. Sure. It's sure possible. But I'm not going to run to that conclusion. I'm going to say, well, maybe they're just a confused, sinning person. Uh, <clears throat> there's a phrase, and I forget one of Paul's letter, where uh, Demas, having loved this present world, left him. And I've always wanted to write mm-hmm. a book called The Way of Demas. You know, we don't know what Demas got into, but apparently he was a disciple and a follower of Paul's. But at some juncture, he chose the world over following his Christianity. Huh. Now, does that mean Demas wasn't saved? I don't think so. I think Demas made a choice not to continue in faithfulness. Now, again, there's no proof of that. Yeah. But I want to be cautious not to run around saying that person's not a Christian because X. Right. Now, if they're flagrant and they're denying the Bible, denying the gospel, denying you know clear things about Scripture, sure, we can have uh, a reason to say you know, maybe they don't get it. Right. But let's right. be very careful saying you know, he or she's not a Christian because they blank. X. Yeah, I would just rather not be in the seat of <laughs> determining well, well, if someone's saved or not. We're not to determine it. it. We're also to be wise. Sure. And if you have a person living in gross immorality and uh, and they're involved in a, a local church and they're leaders, mm, that's not right. You know. Right. But again, the passage is on discipline, if we want to call them that, Matthew 18, Galatians 6. Obviously, we are to, and I hate the word the way it's you know used today, but no, we're to judge. Yeah. We're to use uh, wisdom and say, you can't live with this person. You can't live in immorality. You can't choose this lifestyle and call yourself, identify with that merely because that's what you want. Right. We've got to align this with Scripture. Now, does that mean they're not believers? I'm not ready to say yes and no to that. I yeah. think I think the repentant heart, uh, the work of Christ's Spirit in helping a person come to repentance is powerful. And uh, I've known people, for example, in the LGBTQ world who have come to Christ early in life, uh, were identified with those things, and came back later and said, you know what, I've been living a lie. This yeah. is wrong. Yeah. And they're very vocal and loving and kind to say, you can't call yourself by some acronym. A gay Christian. Your or, identity yeah, yeah. is in Christ, <clears throat> not in, you know, X, Y, Z. So I, I, I applaud men and women who are, you know, who are willing to say, I want to submit to the spirit's work in my life, the scripture's work in my life. As I often say, God's word, God's spirit, God's people. Right. Uh, and again, I'm rambling, but my salvation is resting on Christ's work not what I do or don't do. And so you can't lose your salvation Correct. because it was based on Christ's work. So what could you do to undo right. the work of Christ? Right. Okay, well, I am going to push you to ramble a little bit more, though, because I want to hear more about uh, you saying that the passage about um, knowing the tree by its fruit, how that's misapplied. I don't know if, I've, if I have heard you talk about it. I've just forgotten. Well, Let's let's talk about the word fruit to begin with. There's okay. there's a couple of different terms in the New Testament. The primary term in the Gospels that Jesus uses is uh, a word called carpones, and so 
in Matthew seven seventeen is is uh, sixteen seventeen is where most folks will know. You will know them by their fruits. Yeah. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, yeah. are they? So every good tree bears good fruit. good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. He's talking about false prophets. Oh, that's that the greater passage. context of that. Uh huh. So that, that to, to put a fine point on it. Um, and then he continues, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown to the fire. Um, and then, so then you will know them by their fruits. So there is a sense, and, w and we can take that principle and move it from false prophets to more of a general application. Sure. Uh, but the idea of a good work producing fruit in, uh, in kind with your tree production to, f to follow the imagery, bad tree, good tree. Uh-huh. So is the person a believer? Are they presuming? I think it's a bit of a stretch on the passage. Interesting. Now, um, again, Matthew has the same record: either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For a tree is known by its fruit. And he continues in the same metaphor. Another way of thinking about this is the way John uses the term. And while he talks about fruit in similar ways, he's talking about the branch parable, which is a very interesting story. Every branch, John 15, 2, in me that does not bear fruit, uh -huh. he takes away. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, prunes, so it may bear more fruit. This is one of the simplest and most complicated parables <laughs> Jesus ever used. There are Literally, I bet books there are a thousand dissertations written on this passage alone. Crazy. Uh, and I would call that evangelical, fundamental, conservative, reform passages. Yeah. And not, not just at broad strokes. No one agrees on this. Um, some huh. believe it was the believer's works that are pruned. Okay. Some think it's people that aren't truly believers. Yeah. I tend to go with the works yeah. being pruned. Yeah. So I would say in that situation, he's pruning the believer's works that aren't productive. Yeah. Um, and then when we jump to Paul, he uses the term in a number of different ways, but Galatians 5.22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, uh -huh. where prior in the passage he says the deeds of the flesh are evident, Yeah. but the fruit to production of the Spirit. So all I have to say, um, if a person is a person of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control, that person is being controlled by the Spirit of God, ergo the production in his or her life by the way, I'm going to argue fruit is singular there. The fruit is love, and all oh, the other lists are manifestations of, of love. what love looks like. Not nine fruits, yeah. but one fruit, love. And under that, we put, you know, love is, has joy, peace, patience, uh -huh. kindness, goodness. Uh, so the overarching control of the spirit results in a person who is loving, not, as he said earlier in Galatians, the deeds of the flesh are evident. If you're controlled by the flesh, this is what you see. So we need to be, you know, someone joked about being fruit inspectors. You know, we're not fruit inspectors <laughs> right. in that sense because that's not our role. Um, so fruit, I, I think, again, a careful study of how the word is used in the New Testament. False teachers, perhaps works and good works. And clearly by Galatians, Paul's use of the term has to do with the result of the Holy Spirit's influence in my life and your life. Uh, so, you know, you see a person that you knew before they knew Christ and they were arrogant and uh, bombastic and rude and whatever, and they're not that way anymore. Yeah. They're, they think before they speak. Yeah. They're, or when they say something wrong, I had a friend of mine just this week, he was uh, at his physical therapist and they got in this big argument and he 
was really mean and nasty to her. And he texted me, and we talked uh, this week, and he said, Michael, I blew it so badly. And I said, <laughs> I'm glad. <laughs> I'm glad. You're still human, you know? Yeah. But what, was, what I'm glad about was he knew he was wrong. Right. Where a person who is governed by their own ego, their pride, the deeds of the flesh are evident, they're not going to apologize for being mad or feel right. bad. Well, that's what I was going to say. And even even more so, if he chose to go back, I mean, I assume he's seeing his he physical will. therapist all the time. He's going to go back and apologize for it. And that is going to be a bigger marker or story for her. I mean, I, I you may remember this. I was like a very cruel high school student to one of my science teachers. I don't know why. I was generally a good kid, but for whatever reason, everyone hated her. I was kind of the ringleader. It was not good. And I was really convicted probably three quarters into the year. And I went up to her um, before class one day and, and just had to say, I'm not going to say her name, just in case. Miss <laughs> Smith, Miss Smith, yeah, right? Yeah, Miss Smith. I need you to know that I have I have not been kind to you. I have not been helpful in rallying our class, and I'm I just need to apologize. I'm so sorry for my behavior, and I want you to know that as of today, it will be different, and I'm going to change. And I mean that that woman's face, <laughs> jaw dropped. You know, could not believe it, and but it did, and I changed, and the and the classroom changed because I really kind of was I was kind of the ringleader. I mean, it was not good. I'm not proud of it, but. I am great. I mean, of course, I hate that I mistreated her that way and misrepresented Christ in the three quarters of that year. But I will never forget doing that. And I bet she will never forget oh, a student ever yeah. saying that either. And I don't know. That's just the, the kindness and of the Lord's redemption and showing us when we're stupid and need to repent. No doubt. So back to fruit for just a second. Yeah, uh, I, I'm not going to, you know lose my salvation or get on a bulldogmatic uh, soapbox here. I just think we need to be careful uh, using these terms sometimes. You know, you know, I have this phrase that we have this religious vocabulary and we use it till it becomes meaningless. And that's why I'm a big context guy. Go back and see how these things are used in the situation, where they are in scripture, how other authors use them before you make a conclusion. Yeah. Uh, and I think that guards us. Uh, and I'd rather be a little bit, you know, on the air of c be careful with how we use those terms than let them mean anything. Yep. Okay. Well, our next question is from Kristen. And I really appreciate this question because I think this is a hot topic right now today. And I've heard a, a lot of other conversations. So interested to hear your thoughts on this. Hi, Dr. E. My name is Kristen. I live in Jacksonville, Florida. And first of all, I just want to say thank you for your teaching and your ministry. My question is about hearing from God. It seems to be a trend among popular Bible studies and teachers today, hearing from God quite a bit. And even my Sunday school class at church is doing a video series from a very popular Christian author who talked about how God still speaks the same today as he did in the Old Testament, through dreams, through burning bushes, etc. And I found that to be unbiblical. My understanding through studying the word was that God spoke in the Old Testament because we didn't have the scripture yet and the inspired word of God, and we didn't have the Holy Spirit yet. And that, yes, today the Holy Spirit can speak to us, but our primary means of hearing from God is through his word, the Bible. And I just want to make sure that I have a correct understanding of that, and I was hoping you could biblically walk me through that to make sure I understand about hearing from God. I just seem to find a lot of modern feeling, I guess, in 
the way people want to hear from God today, and they don't know the scriptures. But again, I want to make sure that I'm correct and not incorrect. So thank you so much for your help. I appreciate it. Thank you. Bye. Well, this is a popular and ever-present discussion. Number one, let's begin. Scripture is the very word of God. It's not merely a record, Mm. not merely an account. It is God speaking to man. Yes, we have a record. Yes, we have an accounting, but it is the very word of God. Secondly, signs and wonders, and I'm going to jump there for a minute, for the most part were used by God in unique and pivotal ways. Sure. It's safe to say that even in Scripture, these are not normative. Uh-huh. Uh, the idea of, and you've heard me talk about this and wave my hands, supernatural means above nature. And I raise my hand high and make an arc. It's above, super, above nature. Right. By the nature of supernatural, it's above nature. It's not normative. And that would be the burning bush she cites, for example. Right. That was not normative. And even where the text says it was burning but not consumed. Yeah. So this wasn't a spontaneous combustion, which people tell me in Texas can happen sure. in a bale of hay. Oh, totally. With the right heat, moisture content, some methane gas, whatever, yeah. a, a, a bale of hay will, will combust. Yeah. But you know what? It's It'll be consumed. Up. Yeah. So the burning bush is a miracle, not because it was burning, because it was not consumed. So. Here, here's my concern. Uh, experiences are just that, experiences. They have no authority. Scripture has authority. That's the differentiation. Sure. So herein lies the problem. A person's having a hard time. Yeah. He or she is on their porch on a Saturday morning drinking their coffee, and they have their Bible in their lap, and they're uh, sad or unhappy or mad at God or feel distant or apathetic or they're hurting from some problem and they're not reading their Bible and looking over the porch and a cardinal lands on the rail of the porch. Yeah. And God came to me in a cardinal and he <laughs> cheered me up and he <laughs> sang at me. I just had this You're bad. I, I no, I just read this from a person the last five days. Yeah. And this person said in their little thing, I don't know if that's God, you know, what God meant, but I choose, and, and on and on they went. Yeah. I went, you know, as lovingly as I can say, no, because here's why. An experience is just an experience. Uh, Norm Geisler, Dr. Geisler was a professor of mine in seminary, and he would say, I had this, the person had this dream, and the Lord showed me this and that and the other. And he would say, what did you eat for dinner the night before? <laughs> Meatballs. <laughs> did you have pizza and yeah. Pepsi? That's why you had a bad dream. So here's the problem with experiences, and, and not to be pejorative and condescending. Here's the point. If we have an experience, a dream, a vision, some you know, still voice, and we make a decision based on that information. Alone. God led me through this experience. Yeah. God told me, God affirmed, yeah. fill in the blank. Now, depending on the outcome of the decision, how do I how do I then interpret the experience? Right. So right. a couple comes to me and said, God, we prayed and God led us together and we want to get married. Yep. And I've sat in that office more times than I can count when a couple has come into my office and said this, and I want to say, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not a priest. I'm not, you're uh, a person who gives permission. I'm going to tell you from a wisdom standpoint, experience, God did not lead you together. Mm. You guys have 
have both some histories here that you need to sort through. You need some really good help. You need some couples to minister to you, to walk alongside you uh, before you choose to get married, for example. And that, no, no, God, we prayed and God led us together. And I say, as much as kindly as I can say this, he did not. Mm. He did not. Now, God's word, God's spirit, God's people yeah. can affirm to you sure. wise decisions. Yeah. But you can't just say in a vacuum, I, pr- you know, I prayed in the cardinal land and told me this was going to happen. Because when the experience... If a cardinal, though, spoke to you, I would say, <laughs> I'm going to go for it. It's God spoke to me through a cardinal. I'm, I'm just... going to say it's red and it's a, the devil. <laughs> I mean, see where you can go with this. You can go anywhere you want with it. And so that's the problem with experience. And experience is just an experience. It has no authority. I don't know what to do with these things. I'm not saying they're categorically uh, not of God. I'm going to put the thumb on the scale and say, you be very careful of any experience. And and I'm not going to name authors in some of the books that I won't even read because I already know where they're going or I've read enough about it to know. Um, don't let experience teach you theology. Don't let the world or circumstances. It's got to be grounded in God's word, in God's spirit, and God's people. So I, I need his spirit, yeah. which, by the way, is not this super mystical experience of leading and guiding and inclining me. The spirit is a person who indwells the believer. We submit to his control. Yeah. How do I submit to his control? Back to the scriptures. Yeah. So years ago, Bob Salstrom worked for Dallas Seminary when I was a student, and he was over the uh, church relations and alumni department. And I would go see him, and he was the consummate silver-haired pastor and just always dressed distinguished and smooth voice. And he had this small, round conference table, Hannah, maybe two, three chairs, and he always had an open Bible on it. And I would stop by to see Bob, and he would always welcome me in, and he would say, he would pick up the Bible and put it in your hand and say, read this. And I'd read it out loud. And he goes, what's that saying to you and me? Every time we walk in his office, and it was just something he'd been reading that morning or whatever, and we'd talk about the passage. And I remember going into him probably my first semester because the way I was raised, I was unsure of once saved, always saved, eternal security. And so I'm talking to him, and I asked him finally, I said, I heard this once saved, always saved. I just don't know about that. And he he asked a few questions, and he said, how do you know you're saved? And I don't remember what I said to him at the time. And then he followed it up with his What's the authority yeah. of your salvation? What, what do you base your authority on? And I, I think I knew the answer to that. I said God's word. And I can still see him caressing his, like combing his hand across the Bible <laughs> on the pages going, that's right. This is the only authority we mm. have. Mm. This has authority because God said it. He spoke it. Now, we submit to that authority. Mm-hmm. The Holy Spirit controls us Mm -hmm. and we submit to what the scripture says we don't do that by will or by determination or by the work of the flesh it's the work of the spirit spirit, so this is where i think we get when when we start losing our moorings from the bible itself and we start making experiential conjectures we're going to get in trouble yeah fast forward it doesn't work out right the experience a plus B led us to C, and then the experience doesn't work out. Let's use marriage as an example. We prayed. God led us together. We got married. Now we're getting divorced. Yeah. There's all kinds of metastasized ways we can discuss this. Let me just ask the question. Was God leading you in the wrong direction, or did you misinterpret God? Uh-huh. It's got to be the latter. Right. If we thought the experience right. was what led us to the decision. Right. 
So all that rambling to try to tie the bow on it to say experience is just that. If it confirms and affirms, wonderful. Yeah. Don't make a decision based on an experience alone. Right. I want God's word. And there's so much more wisdom in the text than we give it credit for. Right. I need a submission to God's spirit. And by the way, if you're living in sin, you're not submitted to the spirit. Right. If you're living with your girlfriend or your boyfriend and you think God wants you to get married, let me tell you as a friend, you're confused. Right. You cannot live in sin and ask God to bless your marriage. It just, it's incomprehensible, but that's how we work. And that's just one illustration of how we live in sin and selfishness, not submitting ourselves to what we know of the Bible. I think it was Mark Twain that said, it ain't those parts of the Bible I don't understand that bother me. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's the parts, parts I, I do, do understand. And that's probably not attributed to him correctly or what he said. <laughs> but the idea is valid is, you know, we don't want to submit to the things that are black and white. Yep. This is the will of God that you abstain from sexual immorality. Yep. So off the trail, but come back to be very cautious. Don't let experience be your authority. Yep. And it doesn't hurt to submit to God's word, God's spirit, and ask some wise Christian friends. Don't let the cardinal on your porch so tell you what to do. Now, maybe he brightened her day. That's a wonderful thing. Yeah. That's a wonderful it's thing. It's not probably God incarnate. As I, I, I would say no. I yep. won't even comment. <laughs> All right, let's go to our next question, uh, which was a write-in. And so I'm going to have our new assistant director, Casey Wheeler, read this for us because she also has this very same question. So so let's listen to Casey read our uh, friend who actually wrote this in. Hi, Dr. E. Curious about what you think about Jephthah's vow to sacrifice whatever came out of his house in return for his victory in battle, which, of course, resulted in the sacrificing of his daughter. Well, let's take this from a, a couple of uh, angles. Number one, the book of Judges, which I love. And by the way, if you teach boys, like anywhere from third, fourth, fifth, middle school, high school boys, you got to teach the book of Judges. <laughs> the story of Eglon and Ehud, every boy will love the story of Eglon the really fat, the, the really knife fat man, that, the yeah. knife. Yeah, I mean, there's yeah. so many great stories. Samson, of course, Gideon. But anyway, I love the book of Judges. Now, that said, it's a horrible book. Um <laughs> The, the, but teach the, them the horrible the, yeah, well, yeah, 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 we'll get it to that. It is the very word of God. <laughs> it is, thank you. Uh, the reason it's horrible is that in those days there is no king in Israel, and every man did what was right in, in his own, own eyes. eyes. That's yep. the cadence of these cycles in the book of Judges. It's kind of America today, well, right? Well, let's, yeah, <clears throat> on that cheery note, um, <laughs> getting like your old man. So, so the story of Judges is... Uh, everyone's doing what is right in their own eyes. The, the book begins with much of the land had not yet been taken. So Israel has not been obedient in going into the promised land. The tribal disputes begin early on. The Danites complain about their territory. I mean, it, it's, a, it's a wonderful book about people when they finally get what they want and they don't want to you know, continue following God. That's the, the bottom line, which is Ooh, your, your comment about oh, America. Right, yeah. So now let's go, to, let's go to Jephthah. So in chapter 11 of the book of Judges, uh, Jephthah is the ninth judge. Uh, he's called a valiant warrior. He's a Gileadite. But he's the son of a harlot. Okay. So you're getting the backstory already. You know they're doing what's right in their own eyes. Uh, Jephthah's parents should not have gotten together. Yeah, coming from a broken home. Right, bro- broken yeah. home. He, he's a, he's a complicated guy. Um, his backstory in in chapter eleven, 
verse 7, Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, Do you not hate me and drive me from my father's house? So why have you come to me now when you're in trouble? And and this is like, mm. you know, whenever you go to war, you take whoever will go with you. Yeah. Um, and so they've treated him horribly. And he's got a bunch of, the text calls them worthless fellows. you got to love it, who are his <laughs> friends. And so he's running with the wrong crowd. And yet they need him when they're going up to battle. So Jephthah makes this vow in chapter 11, verse 29. Now the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah so that he passed through Gilead and Manasseh. Then he passed through Mizpah of Gilead. And from Mizpah of Gilead, he went on to the sons of Amnon. Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed give the sons of Ammon into my hand, then it shall be whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the sons of Ammon. It shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. Jephthah crossed over to the sons of Amnon to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand. And he struck them with a very great slaughter. So he wins the battle. What did he think was going to come out of his house, though? An animal? I yeah, mean, I, I they would had think. animals. Yeah, I would think so. Now, understand compounds, and more than likely, this isn't a physical home by this time. This is more, you know, they're, they're disp- well, they're dispossessing. So, you know, in the land where he would have been, he may have had some shelters or tent structures, but think of more of a compound okay. and think of, you know, herds and flocks being around it. it and, and there's no question it was a rash vow. Um, I, I read one commentator years ago that called it Jephthah's stupid vow. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think the other thing that's really bothersome is that it's like the Holy Spirit came upon him and led him through, like, that is at the beginning of that passage. And so... I mean, I guess today we have the Holy Spirit indwelling us and we still make really stupid decisions, so. Every every character is a flawed character. Right. Um, my, my contention is there's only one really super successful guy in the Old Testament who followed God after disobeying him, which was Jonah. Yeah, but Jonah doesn't end well either. Exactly. <laughs> and arguably he's the most successful guy in the Old Testament. That, that's Michael Easley's crazy opinion. 625,000 people or so come to Christ. This is, we would say 125,000 plus women and children. Right. Let's just double it. Let's just say, you know, 250,000. But it's this huge revival that believe in Yahweh Elohim because of what he does. Yeah. And he's clinically depressed at the end of the book and, and complaining. He's mad about it. He's complaining. Yeah. So success in the Western mindset needs to be erased mm-hmm. what God's doing. Your point earlier, Hannah, and I was going to come back to this, but let me, let me say it now. The one thing about Scripture that to me is so unlike any other world religion is that Scripture records man in his sinful condition and God uses him in spite of him. Yeah. David's sins are recorded totally. for eternity. Jephthah's rash vow is recorded for eternity. Um, when Let's continue in the storyline where it is tragic. When Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah, this is Judges 11.34, Behold, his daughter was coming out to meet him with tambourines and dancing. And here's the heart-wrenching. Now, she was his one and only child. If that weren't enough, besides her, he had no son or daughter. Wait, wait, wait. You already (laughs) told me. You don't miss it. When he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you are among 
those who troubled me, for I have given my word to the Lord. I can't. Now, you know, there's so much wrong with his comment, but nevertheless. So she said to him, My father, you have given your word to the Lord. Do to me as you have said, since the Lord has avenged you of your enemies. Now, and again, it's a remarkable text. He said, She said, Let this thing be done to me. Let me alone for two months that I may go to the mountains and weep because of my virginity. I and my companions drop down to verse 39. At the end of two months, she returned to her father who did to her according to the vow which he had made. So he killed her. He burned her. She had no relations with the man. Thus it became a custom. There's two uh, prominent views. Now, for years, I have believed he killed her. Okay. Um, and in, in recent scholarship, uh, there is a view, and I'm not saying I'm, I'm there yet, that the vow that she makes here is she's going to remain a, a virgin. Never marry. And be excluded from mm-hmm. the tribe. And so this would make sense then. Verse 40, the daughters of Israel went yearly to commemorate the daughter of Jephthah. Uh, and, and so perhaps that's what happened in the ancient Near East. We don't know is the bottom line. Um, I don't have a problem believing that Jephthah carried out and killed his daughter and burned her. What do you mean I don't have a problem with I, that? I mean, I don't have a problem with the idea that he actually that he actually executed, no pun intended, his vow. He kept his vow. Uh-huh. Because go back to his history, go back to his lineage, go back to his rash vow to begin with. And in some convoluted way, he had kind of a moral compass. I made this vow to God. God delivered me from Amnon and Ammonites. I got to do what I said I was going to do. Um, you know, I, I can't prove it. But the other part is is an argument from silence. We just don't know. And when I read that text by itself, at the end of two months, he returned to her father who did to her according to the vow which he had made. The vow he made back in chapter uh, 11, verse 29, uh, verse 31, whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return, I will offer up as a burnt offering. Now, God didn't sanction this. Right. Did did Moses already say, like, was it already part of the law, don't make vows to the Lord? Or is that? Yes. So. No vows and no child sacrifice, no human sacrifice. Right. So both of these are. Against the will of the Father. Jephthah is a judge who is doing what is right in his own eye. He's a judge with a convoluted uh, family system. We can't make presumptions that he was taught the law well. Sure. The theme of the book, everyone does what's right in their own eyes. There's no king in Israel to tell them, which, by the way, isn't a an indictment. We didn't have a David yet. The indictment is there's no king, meaning Israel didn't follow her king. Right. Yahweh Elohim. right, right. You're not listening to Yahweh Elohim. This is not what he told you when you went to the land. Yeah. You're not doing what he said. And so it, it's Judges is the darkest chapter in the Old Testament. And when you come to the end of Judges where you've got, you know, we've gone from Judges who were to deliver the, the people of Israel to basically these one-man stories with Gideon right. and Samson, who basically is a modern-day you know, John Rambo, Arnold Schwarzenegger, world into one. It's yeah. all about him. It's not about Israel anymore. Right. And so we're continuing to see every man doing what's right in his own eyes. Uh-huh. By the way, what got Solomon in trouble? Uh, what got Samson in trouble? Women. 
His eyes. I see her. Mm -hmm. She looks good to me. Get her for me. He saw a lie. He saw these things. Saw a woman from Timna. He can't miss it. What happens to him at the end? His eyes are gouged gouged out. (laughs) Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. eyes. What a crescendo on the Mm -hmm. storyline. You're doing what's right in your eyes. I'm going to take your eyes out. I'm trying to explain to you. So the period of judges and then civil war, of of course, becomes, you know, uh, another terribly low part of the story of judges. And then we had the book of Ruth, which begins with this cryptic phrase in the days when the judges were judging, Mm. doing what's right in their own eyes. You got this one guy, a kinsman redeemer, who's a righteous man. And you got this one woman who is a Moabite, yep. for goodness yep. sakes, yep. who believes a rumor from her mother-in-law yep. about this God, Yahweh Elohim. And by the way, Naomi, in the beginning of the story, ain't the best PR <laughs> for God. <laughs> right. You know, So th- the story is remarkable in that two faithful people, one who was not a Jew. He was an outsider. Uh-huh. But believed in the Jewish Yahweh Elohim. Yep. And one who's a kinsman redeemer. In the midst of all this, which goes, I mean, to me, the hair on the back of my neck goes up. The power of one person being Uh faithful Uh in a crazy situation like judges. In the days when the judges are judging. And, of course, from from, uh, kinsman redeemer, Boaz, and Ruth, we have the lineage of Jesus. Obed, Jesse. David, is that right? Did yep. I get those three yep. in order? Did. Did. Uh, so I think I think the reason people have the, I mean I mean why we all have a hard time with this story is this idea that he makes a vow and then feels like he has to carry the vow out because he made it. And I, so I think our human piece is like, no, wouldn't God understood if he hadn't killed yeah. his daughter? But but I mean for me I go back to God told you through the law to not make a vow to him. So it's not even like. Right. I, I mean, there's so much wrong. Um, you can't build a if-then construct. You can't build a logical construct in the book of Judges. Again, the cadence yeah. doing what's right. There's no king. They're not following Yahweh. They're following their own whims. And they've got shards and pieces of the law, but obviously they're not you know, following it well. And this, to me, is an epic failure of the Levitical order of the Aaronic priesthood that they didn't lead their people. And, you know, you can go all the way back, you know, Eli's sons. I mean, there's so many illustrations of where the law is not transmitted well to the next generation. But um, it's a horrible story, one of many in the Bible, that is a little bit hard to to swallow, uh, to accept. But, you know, again, I write in pencil. I I think he killed his daughter. I think he had some twisted moral compass to him. I made the vow. I got to fulfill it because God did what I asked him to do. Yep. He delivered me from the Ammonites and I was victorious. And I said, whatever comes out of there, I got to do it. Horrible story. Uh, and I could be wrong. There's always that. Well, now, even though this is ask Dr. E, I want to ask Hannah S <laughs> a question. Oh, great. So it's coming up on uh, graduation, matriculation. Uh, teenage girls are looking at colleges. Some are already in college. Some are uh, having a hard time at college. You wouldn't have to know a resource that would be helpful <laughs> for these college girls. Okay. I've, I'm relieved because I thought, what is he going to ask me that I'm going to have to answer on the fly? We have not discussed this. Um, define, uh, let's talk about transubstantiation for a minute, Hannah. No, um, 
I do have a resource. I wrote a book, came out last year, last April, called The College Girl Survival Guide. And you can get it at Amazon or Barnes and Noble. Um, but I also just launched a shop on my website. You can buy it straight for me if you want to. And that's just at hannahseymour.com. But the book are the top 52 concerns of college women today. I spent over a decade working on a few different college campuses and mentoring college men and women, or I really should say that mentoring college women and men. Um, but this book is a culmination of those 10 years of all those conversations. I used to have a blog that was a Q&A for college girls where girls all over the country would write in and ask about roommates or boyfriends or how do I figure out what I want to do with my life. So all of that bundled up into 52 questions. And it's a great gift. I mean, it's a great gift for anyone that you know in college. But for high school grad gifts, as I know, I frequently attend like anywhere from two to six you know, high school grad parties every year. Um, and this truly was the book that I, I wanted to exist for years. I wanted there to be a book that I could buy an 18-year-old girl headed off to college that was grounded in biblical principles but wasn't like overly christianese confident yeah um and so it's an easy read it's really practical and basically i just could never find the book that i wanted to give away so i wrote it <laughs> and and as a parent and watching many of our peer uh, send their kids off to college and what these uh, young men and women, in your case, are, are being inundated with. Yeah. Their faith is being challenged, and, and it's almost an affront now to be a Christian on many of these campuses. Yeah. So just as, as a father, uh, encouraging those of you who know, maybe you've got a niece, maybe you know a friend of a friend who's, whose daughter is headed off to college, or as Hannah mentioned, about to graduate this May, a great gift. And I would even say maybe wait. Don't give it to them at graduation. But like three weeks into college, mail, mail it, it to them. them. Mm -hmm. Or after the first parent weekend, mail it to them. Or even as a Christmas gift after they've got one semester under their belt and now they're really in the crucible. Uh, th this is a great. And, and Hannah, you wrote it so they can turn to any chapter. You don't have to read the yeah, whole book. Yeah, that's right. That's right. You got a problem with a roommate. Uh, you you. you you tread on some delicate issues. Is it okay to have sex with your yeah, boyfriend? We talk about sex. We talk about and, alcohol, and drugs. drugs yeah. And um, it's the kind of question most daughters are not going to ask their parents or their youth pastor or anyone else that's going to give them a good answer. So here you've got this book they can turn to, flip to. And uh, you know, one of the things I do I, when I send books out, especially on grief, because you know, a lot of the books I send are people that have lost loved ones. I take a book I like and I highlight some things and dog ear the page uh -huh. and say, you may not read the whole book, but these pages I think might be helpful or yeah. an encouragement to yeah. you. And so, you know, use the book wisely, but I'd say buy you know, buy a few of them, keep them on hand, uh, look for opportunities. And uh, it's a great way to minister to young women who are going to be challenged and have some very difficult uh, waters to wade through and this might just be a book they reach for and go oh that chapter helps me on a messy roommate or yeah. you know I, I gotta get a different I gotta change dorms or whatever it is that is a that are huge issues when you're in those years as a young woman in college yeah and I will say because I got a lot of questions when the book came out last year um, from different friends like hey would this be an okay book to give to someone who's not a believer and it's my answer is an emphatic yes I, I, I mean in the intro I talk about if you aren't a Christian or aren't raised in the church you can totally like 
you're going to be great with this book. I wrote it to be super palatable, um, no matter where people are in their spiritual journey. I had a dad email me, I mean, months ago now, but um, said, you know, I'm Jewish. My daughter isn't even like a practicing Jew, but I, your book was incredible. I gave it to her as wow. well. Um, and of course he's faith-based, you right. know, I mean, so all of my stuff talking about God and, you know, he, he's going to totally buy into that. But um, that was so encouraging to me because I thought, yes, like I, this is what I, I wrote this book to hit the unchurched and the non-believer all the way to the girl that was raised in the church. And I think it is able to be read and enjoyed and appreciated by anyone in that range. So, so there's your answer to ask Hannah S. <laughs> <laughs> well, we have lots more questions in the queue and we will start answering them soon. You've probably noticed our pattern. We're trying to release an Ask Dr. E episode once a month. This summer, I will be on maternity leave. What? I know. What? Can you believe You're not it? Working? <laughs> um, but my hope, so we'll see. We'll see if there are any ass doctories <laughs> that come out this summer. If not, it will resume in September, where we will also have a brand new series coming out that you can learn more about next week. We will have episodes coming out every Tuesday this summer, and you will learn more about what we've got going on um, if you tune in next week. So thanks for listening. Thanks for emailing and calling in your questions. Keep them coming. In Context is engineered by Chad Cates, produced by Hannah Seymour, and music composed by Chad Cates and Blair Masters.